Looking back on the week that was with a razor wit, irreverent humour and profound political and cultural insights, this is The James McPherson Show. Welcome to The James McPherson Show. Great to have your company after a couple of weeks off. I'm sorry about that, but it's good to be back and I trust you'll enjoy this week's show. We're talking about how men make more beautiful women than women, and we call that progress as a transgendered person is crowned Miss New Zealand. We're talking about Tasmania's euthanasia diehards who are lobbying again for euthanasia laws, despite the fact that Parliament has already rejected them three times. Meanwhile, ABC host Lee Sales compares Donald Trump to Robert Mugabe proving she knows very little about Trump or Mugabe. And Anthony Albanese, struggling for relevance, chimes in with advice about the US election. Not only that, but Channel 7 commentator and newly appointed Perth Lord Mayor Basil Zemplis decides to uh, say what all of us know to be true, but none of us are stupid enough to say, that is that gender is determined by biology and didn't all hell break loose when he dared to suggest that. All that and more coming up on today's show. So glad that you're joining me. I hope you enjoy it. When you understand why the Jewish establishment wanted Jesus dead, you'll understand why the mainstream media are now openly agitating for the crucifixion of free speech. Jesus claimed to be God, communicating directly with people. This was good news for the common man, but for the privileged priestly class, it was hell. Priests had, for thousands of years, mediated between God and man, placing them in a unique position to be able to control the conversation and mould society as they, God, intended. But now that God was communicating directly with the masses, mediators were suddenly superfluous. Their opportunity to massage messages, manage narratives and manipulate outcomes was gone. Crucify him, they yelled. And so the priests ensured God was put to death so they could continue to speak for him. Now, fast forward 2,000 years and a new priestly class, suddenly under threat, is reacting with much the same venom. The mainstream media have for years mediated between power and people, placing journalists in a unique position of power themselves. But then along came a tweeter-in-chief who used social media to speak directly to voters, sidelining journalists and, in so doing, threatening their ability to control the conversation. You are fake news. No, I'm not suggesting that Donald Trump is a sinless, Christ-like messiah who can command the oceans and save the world from destruction. Every leftist knows that was Obama. I love you, back. But the high priests of social media's Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey are now actively censoring Trump posts, along with any other conservative messages they don't like, in a rearguard action designed to protect their role as arbitrators of speech. But like Jesus, free speech is hard to kill. And so it was last week that Network 10's The Project warned ominously about the dangers of Parler, a new social media platform where speech is allowed to roam free of interference from big tech and mainstream media. The segment was introduced like this. Are you looking for a place for misinformation, conspiracy theories and outright lies to be shared with millions, completely unchecked or unchallenged? 
Now, that introduction prompted many viewers to think it was going to be a promo for the project. But then the show's co-host, Peter Van Onselen, identified the enemy of freedom. Quote, it's getting a bit harder for fans of alternative facts, but not on Parler. Parler, launched in 2018, looks like Twitter, and it functions like Twitter. But there are some big differences, starting with this catchy tagline. Speech freely and speak freely and express yourself without fear of being deplatformed for your views. End quote. Now, you might think a prominent journalist like Peter Van Onselen would like the idea of citizens being able to freely express themselves. He does, after all, count on this freedom for himself. But you'd be mistaken. Ten's political editor loves free speech about as much as the Jewish priests love Jesus of Nazareth. Van Onselen sermonized. In, In practice, practice, this means things like unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud or QAnon material can be thrown around willy-nilly without any fact-checking or, or mediation. mediation, end quote. And so there you have it from the professor's own mouth. The problem with Parler is that it allows people to speak without any need for the priestly class to mediate. Fake news, fake news, fake news. And without the Peter Van Onselens of this world fact-checking our opinions... I am the least racist person in this world. We're in danger of all sorts of willy-nilly thinking, which is a high priestly term for non-leftist thinking. The reason it's a good thing that platforms like Facebook and Twitter are starting to remove the completely unfiltered world, Van Onselen said is because it reinforces incorrect thinking and all sorts of problematic ways of having attitudes, and that undermines democracy, he said. Only a self-appointed priestly class who control the media would argue that the best way to promote democracy is to filter people's thinking and attitudes through the leftist bias of a self-appointed priestly class who control the media. Van Onselen continued, My natural tendency would be against censorship, but... Now, now, when someone uses the word but immediately after insisting their natural tendency is to f- support free speech, you can bet their natural tendency is to think North Korea has a lot to recommend it. But I digress. This isn't about censorship, Van Onselen protested. It's about fact-checking and being able to keep discourse that's discourteous out of the platform. In other words, it's about censorship. Shouts of crucify free speech were quickly echoed by the project's co-host, Lisa Wilkinson. And when, when you, you consider, consider how, many how many people are still with Trump at this point and still yep. believe that vote checking has to happen because they feel like the election was stolen from them, then they're going to go on this. And as you say, there will be no fact checking whatsoever. And I mean, I really worry about the future, future of the, the US, US when- she said. And so our priests in the media want to kill free speech so they can continue to speak and think for us. God save us from your priests. Girls have a vagina. But only a crazy, brave person would say so. Perth Lord Mayor and Channel 7 host and sportscaster Basil Zemplis was crazy brave the other week. Showing a reckless disregard for his own well-being, the newly elected mayor said publicly that biology determines gender. He might as well have run naked through a minefield screaming, yippee ki Zemplis was hosting a radio show when his co-host, talking about transgender issues, said... That's the new era, Basil. Get into it. If I subscribe to being a girl, I'm a girl. A careless Zemplis replied, no, you don't. No, no, wrong, wrong. And then he said what has been unsayable since Bruce Jenner appeared as Caitlin on the cover of Vanity Fair back in 2015. If you've got a penis, mate, you're a bloke. If you've got a vagina, you're a woman. Game over. End quote. 
Most people listening knew that this was true. Everyone listening thought it was a crazy, brave thing to actually say. Social media was suddenly angrier than a lesbian tennis player drawn to play on the Margaret Court arena. He's transphobic. Does he realise it's the 21st century, not the 1960s? Tweeted one LGBTQI ally as if announcing the date was all that was necessary to damn Mr Zemplis. I hope strong action is taken and he is forced to resign as Lord Mayor, demanded another because presumably if Mr Zemplis was not removed from City Hall, he might next insist that there were only two rather than 71 genders, creating a tear in the space-time continuum and sucking all of Perth into another dimension called reality. Mr Zemplis was variously described as repugnant, unhinged, an utter embarrassment, a nasty piece of work, and a true enemy of intellect and decency, all for the crime of stating a biological fact. The trans folk of WA chairperson, Hunter Gurevich, said the Lord Mayor's comments, quote, fundamentally deny contemporary science, end quote, which said a lot more about contemporary science than it did about the Lord Mayor's comments. Perhaps the Honourable Mr Zemplis would consider consulting experts in the field before providing comment, as would befit a public figure, he said. You can get away with almost anything in public life these days, but insisting that a quick check between your legs will provide reliable proof of gender is not one of them. Mr Zemplis should have known that telling the difference between boys and girls was now a field, best left to experts. (laughs) But the Lord Mayor was nothing if not a quick unlearner. So just 24 hours after suggesting genitals were a good indicator of gender, Mr. Zemplis was telling anyone who would listen that they were not. They're not my views. They are not in keeping with my values, and that is not how I think, he later told journalists. Mr. Zemplis did not say what he now thought about gender, but whatever it was, it certainly had nothing to do with penises or vaginas. And as for values, well, he very much valued his job. And who could blame him? It's not like he was the author of Harry Potter and therefore independently wealthy enough to survive being cancelled for daring to point out anatomical realities. He was clearly hoping that both his thinking and his values had devolved sufficiently for the regressive left to call off the mob. And he was repentant. So very repentant. It was bad broadcasting, he said. It was a moment of stupid broadcasting, and I regret that moment. All of that spoken in an act of dramatic verbal self-flagellation. I'm very sorry for the comments that I made. They were inappropriate. I wish I hadn't made them, and I understand the error of my ways, he said. Finally, he begged not just for forgiveness, but for the chance to be rehabilitated as the Lord Woke of Perth. I made a mistake, and it's my mistake to accept. I have to do better, and I will do better. It's my job to do better than that, and it won't happen again, he promised, adding that he would invite people from the transgender and non-binary communities to meet with him and educate him. Surely this was evidence he had won the victory over himself. He loved Big Brother. He was not crazy brave at all. He was just crazy. uh, I'm old enough to remember when journalists gave us the news and we added our own prejudice. These days, journalists report everything through the sieve of their own personal bias so that what we ought to think about events is baked into the news. Just ask ABC 7.30 host Lee Sales. She'll tell you. With US President Donald Trump refusing to concede election defeat, Sales tweeted, Robert Mugabe keeps coming to mind. Now, the most obvious problem with Sales' in-depth nonpartisan analysis is that the Zimbabwean dictator, unlike Trump, never cried about rigged elections. That's because Mugabe was the one rigging the elections. 
Mugabe won his nation's 2013 election after reportedly receiving more than 350,000 votes from people aged over 85 and 109,000 votes from people aged over 100 in a nation where life expectancy at the time was 51. Anyway, Joe Biden keeps coming to mind. Another problem for sales is that Mugabe didn't attempt to stay in power by challenging the validity of votes through legal channels open to him, as Trump is now doing. Mugabe instead used violent militia to silence his political opponents and to retain power. I don't know why, but Antifa keeps coming to mind. Zimbabwe's leader, Robert Mugabe, unlike Trump, was a Marxist, which is why the murdering, cheating thug was, at least in the beginning, a hero of the left. And speaking of Marxists, the Democrats do come to mind. Actually, so does the ABC commentariat. Donald Trump has always said he would accept the result of a ballot in which legal votes were counted. Robert Mugabe famously said that only God could remove him from office. Hillary Clinton urging Joe Biden before the election not to concede under any circumstances comes to mind. And finally, what are the odds that Lee Sales and former US ambassador to the UN, Samantha Power, would both post tweets within hours of each other comparing Trump to Mugabe? Sales tweeted, Mugabe comes to mind, soon after which Power tweeted, he's going full Robert Mugabe. Isn't it fun how the Twitterati sit in their taxpayer-funded echo chambers, gleefully acknowledging one another's left-wing woke tweets? Now, I'm not for a second suggesting that one plagiarised the other. Not at all. But now that I've mentioned plagiarism, Joe Biden does come to mind again. And to say that Donald Trump reminds you of Robert Mugabe? Seriously? The left are losing their minds. Like me, you probably find the quality of news frustrating. Reporting of political news really seems balanced. If you want a deeper understanding of the issues that are usually offered by mainstream media, you want The Good Source. The Good Source is fan-funded through monthly and one-time donations. To keep our videos and our podcasts, our articles free, and to produce more content like this, please consider becoming a regular supporter. As part of The Good Source's initiatives, we're developing a television studio from which we can film more content. We receive no government funding, so if this initiative is to grow, it'll take fan funding, grassroots buy-in from people like you, who are sick enough of the divisive, anti-family, Marxist guff pumped out in corporate media to do something about it. Your donation will help Good Source fit out and equip a basic studio to produce more independent video media and podcasts, keeping these important conversations from being shut down and censored. For information about how you can become a Good Source supporter, go to goodsource.news slash studio. Some people have something to say and other people just have to say something. Anthony Albanese is firmly in the latter category. The Labour leader, who is clearly struggling with an acute case of relevancy deprivation syndrome, last week called a special press conference to showcase his growing irrelevance. Having failed miserably to assert himself in any meaningful way in domestic affairs, the would-be Prime Minister, who is preferred by just 26% of voters, decided it was time to insert himself into the US presidential election. Albanese's big announcement was that Prime Minister Scott Morrison should pull President Trump into line with a lecture on being a good sport. Whoever is advising the opposition leader must want him gone soon. You could almost hear the collective eye roll from the press gallery. After waxing lyrical on the origins of our alliance with the US and the general importance of democracy, Elbow came to his point. Scott Morrison has a close relationship with President Trump, he said. 
in what was clearly intended to be the most backhanded of compliments. He should be contacting President Trump and conveying Australia's strong view that democratic processes must be respected. I will now take questions. Well, there was an awkward silence, a silence long enough for us to feel sorry for the invisible man of Australian politics. Coronavirus, which is being handled by straight state premiers, has consigned poor Albanese to the national sidelines. I mean, unless he wants to pull Victorian Labor leader Daniel Andrews into line, and we all know that's not going to happen, he's merely spectating from a COVID-safe distance like the rest of us. The federal government's October budget boasted a deficit that a Labor leader like Albanese could only dream of running up. He was reduced to complaining that the financials were sexist. Yawn. As if all of that was not bad enough, the ghost of former ALP leader Kevin Rudd has been attracting attention almost every day albeit with an ill-conceived campaign against Rupert Murdoch, but at least he's in the news. Heck, even Rudd's cheesy handball videos on YouTube get more attention than anything Elbow says. If there's any truth to Oscar Wilde's axiom that the only thing worse than people talking about you is people people not talking about you, then Albanese is very much in the things are worse category. So there stood yesterday's man, blinking awkwardly, hoping like hell that someone would ask a question in response to his insistence that the government give the US president a stern talking to. What possible good could come from your intervention when Republicans can't even bring the president to heel? A reporter eventually belatedly asked. It was a polite way of saying, what the heck are you going on about, Elbow? So granted, it wasn't the question Albanese had hoped for, but he bravely soldiered on. Well, I would have thought that Scott Morrison says he has a strong relationship with President Trump, Elbow repeated, clearly grateful for the chance to again point out that the PM was friends with evil orange man bad. One suspects this smear by association, Trump is a goose, the PM gets on well with Trump, therefore the PM is a goose, was the entire point of Albanese's press conference. But having made that point twice, He now had to push on as though he really believed intervening in the US election was sensible, let alone possible. The fact is that pressure needs to be bought by people who believe in democratic processes, he said, as if the US was about to descend into tyrannical rule because the US president was asking the US courts to ensure US laws had not been broken during the US election. These democratic processes are values which are universal, Albanese warned. Now, putting aside the fact that democracy is hardly a universal value, what sort of pressure did Australia really think, or did Albanese really think could be brought to bear on a supposedly petulant Trump? Albanese, shrinking in front of the cameras with every word that he spoke, replied straight-faced, We saw on Saturday night with both Anastasia Palaget's acceptance speech and Deb Frecklington's gracious acceptance of her non-election, her concession speech, I think, brought credit to our democracy. So there you have it. In the middle of a global pandemic and with the nation facing soaring unemployment, the Labour leader's contribution to the national discourse was to suggest that Scott Morrison phoned Trump and saved the world's superpower from impending doom by recounting how nice a couple of Queensland women were to each other the other weekend. Can you imagine how Anthony Albanese would react if, say, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson called to tell him to respect our federal election results? It's safe to say that if Albanese lasts long enough to see the next federal election, there'll be no argument about whether or not his heavy defeat will have been legitimate. Transgender woman has been crowned Miss Intercontinental New Zealand. 
but it's 2020, so you just know there'll be a twist to this story. And of course, there is. The beauty pageant winner is Filipino, all of which means that this year's Miss Intercontinental New Zealand is a foreign-born biological male. Could there be a more fitting result in a post-truth world where nothing is ever as it seems? You've got me all wrong. You don't know how hard it is being a woman looking the way I do. The mandated response, as we all know, is to applaud and to tell each other how lucky we are to live in a world where people are so open-minded and accepting that literally anyone can be the most beautiful woman in the room, even a man. But how are we to live with such absurdity? We've resolved the contradiction by agreeing that if we all say in unison that a biological man who believes himself to be a woman is in fact a woman, then he is, or or rather she is. As you can see, it takes practice, but with the help of woke media and LGBTQ plus activists who threaten to punish those who stray from the narrative, you can get the hang of it quickly enough. And hey presto, faster than a beauty queen can say world peace, the contradictions dissolve. Women can have a penis, men can be pregnant, and 26-year-old transgendered man, woman rather, Ariel who would know, Ariel Keel, can be named Miss Intercontinental New Zealand less than 12 months after reportedly paying surgeons $15,000 to create her breasts and vagina. Author Stephen King tweeted in July, I believe trans women are women. I do not believe that hate speech and shaming speech are acceptable. Those things are the enemy of rational discourse. Treat even those with whom you disagree with the dignity you expect yourself, end quote. Now, putting aside the fact that King wrote trans women are women and rational discourse in the same tweet, and ignoring King's claim that stating biological facts now constitutes hate speech, the fiction writer's aim is laudable. Decent people wish only happiness for transgendered people, such as Ariel Keel, who reportedly has led a difficult life. Ariel, who was born as a boy named Andrew, claims to have been bullied throughout childhood and thrown out of home when he told his parents he wanted to become a woman. He says he battled depression and he often wanted to take his own life. Well, thank God he didn't. Keel has now reconciled with his father and is studying fashion design in Auckland. He presents as a thoughtful and intelligent person. But redefining reality in order to make people feel better about themselves is neither kind nor sustainable. Tell a plump woman that she doesn't look fat in that dress and no harm is done. But tell a man that if he believes himself to be a woman, then he is, and you create all sorts of unintended consequences, not least for women. Insisting that biological men can become women by changing their pronoun is certainly not kind to women who are stripped of their dignity in the verbal sleight of hand. Such play acting reduces women to a mere costume, a thought in a man's head. Surely this not glancing at one's watch while a woman speaks, as former Prime Minister Tony Abbott once did, is real misogyny. Trans activists complain that to deny trans women are real women is to cruelly deny their existence as people. Well, that's just silly. To say Ariel Keel is not a woman does not deny her existence any more than saying Rachel Dolzeal is not African-American denies that Rachel Dolzeal exists. But it should seem rather obvious that to say trans women are women risks disappearing women, or as CNN like to call them so as to be more trans-inclusive, people with a cervix. See what I mean? And spare a thought for Miss Intercontinental New Zealand runner-up. If she had spent thousands of dollars on plastic surgery in an effort to look more womanly, she would have been derided as fake. But when a biological man like Ariel Keel spends thousands of dollars on plastic surgery so as to look more womanly, he is said to be beautiful 
And if you disagree, you're a bigot. (laughs) That's peak male privilege right there. Life is hard, and some people struggle greatly for reasons the rest of us find difficult to comprehend. We owe it to each other to be as kind and as compassionate as we possibly can. But raging against reality to create a world in which charity for our fellow man or woman completely overwhelms clarity about what men or women actually are is not the way to do it. Euthanasia is being considered by the Tasmanian Parliament for the fourth time in 11 years, proving that some things just won't die. So-called voluntary assisted dying, first killed off by the state parliament in 2009, was resurrected in 2013, only to bite the dust when it was put to the vote. The legislation rose again in 2017, but was quickly snuffed out by two-thirds of Tasmania's MPs who declined to support it. Anyone who thought then that the issue was well and truly buried was dead wrong. Now, with almost as many reincarnations as Shirley MacLaine, euthanasia has come back to life in Tasmania, this time as a private member's bill passed in the state's eclectic upper house and expected to be voted on in the lower house before the end of the year. Tasmanian progressives who like to accuse their opponents of being on the wrong side of history have themselves been on the wrong side of history more often than a tabloid astrologer, and yet they persist. In 2009, the Tasmanian Greens called euthanasia dying with dignity, although they themselves refused to do so when their bill was defeated 15 votes to 7. I will put this bill up or a similar bill again and again and again, Greens MP Nick McKim told the ABC at the time. In a classic case of if at first you don't succeed, die, die again, the dying with dignity bill was twice reincarnated as the voluntary assisted dying bill and in its latest incarnation has been wheeled out as the end of life choices bill. The bill's sponsor, independent MP Mike Gaffney, told The Australian a week ago, in Tasmania we've had bills in 2009, 2013, 2017 and now 2020. The bill should progress as quickly as it can and I'm sure the Premier will do that, end quote. In other words, we've been told no so many times, we're due for a yes. While general fatigue is not a valid reason for being euthanized under Gaffney's proposed laws, it does seem to be reason enough for Gaffney to insist the laws are passed. While the bill differs from earlier versions, the main argument for it seems to be, come on already. Gaffney rejected calls for a public inquiry into the bill, saying, there's nothing left to analyze, it's all there. Well, the Australian Medical Association has analyzed the bill and described what's all there as poorly drafted, poorly conceived, riddled with ambiguity, and rushed. The Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation has also expressed concerns about the bill as it was first presented, which, among other things, did not require a person to be terminally ill. In other words, there was no time limit as to when the person's condition may cause death. It didn't require a person to be currently suffering. The mere anticipation of suffering at some point in the future was enough to qualify a person to be killed. The bill anticipated children would be allowed to access euthanasia in the near future. The legislation, as it was originally presented, mandated a review of the law in two years that must consider extending the law to include minors. And the law, as it was originally presented, obliged Christian hospitals and aged care providers to allow people to be put to death at their facilities. Now, on this last point, Gaffney told The Australian that he was unashamed saying they shouldn't be able to stop voluntary assisted dying occurring at their institutions in a secular society. 
translated, that means Christian values will be subjugated to progressive values because no one has the right to impose their values. <laughs> Did you get that? Gaffney seems bewildered that Christians would object to people being killed at facilities they created to care for the living. Gaffney said, and I quote, If this becomes law, it is a legal choice. So why would any institution deny a person access to adequate or correct medical assistance? Voluntary assisted dying is not suicide, it's a legal medical option, end quote. So death, which has never been an accepted medical outcome and which offers no net gain in health, is to be redefined as correct medical assistance. George Orwell would be proud. Does it never occur to anyone that euthanasia enthusiasts who repeatedly pester parliaments until they finally get the answer they want are the exact same people who promise that when euthanasia is legalised, vulnerable people will never be pressured to push off? While Australians are worried about actual problems like rising unemployment, the Liberal Party is worried about gender imbalance amongst its MPs. It's hard to believe that Australia's Conservative Party would allow itself to be defined by progressive values, especially when progressives can't even define the word woman. But Liberals are allowing themselves to become convinced that anything less than 50% of their MPs being women is inherently bad. Nobody ever gives cogent reasons as to why there should be an equal number of men and women in Parliament. That women comprise half the population is a statistical fact, but not an argument for the composition of Parliament. And the argument that we need more representation of women is a misuse of language since every member of parliament represents men and women equally. The sexist idea that only a woman can truly represent the interests of women was well and truly dismantled the other week when it was revealed Australia's foreign minister, a woman, was yet to speak to her Qatar counterpart about the alleged strip search of 13 Australian women at Doha airport more than three weeks ago. Imagine if a male foreign minister said he was waiting for an official report before raising a subject like that with Qatar's foreign minister. Meanwhile, the possibility that men dominate parliaments because most women are far too intelligent to pursue a career in branch stacking, faction dealing, fundraising and functions at all hours that interfere with family life is not allowed to be considered. Anything less than male-female parity is now prima facie evidence of the Liberal Party's problem with women. Only when parity is achieved can Liberals say they are inclusive and hold their heads high. But if the Liberals were serious about a parliament that mirrored the general population, they'd worry less about gender and instead focus on pre-selecting people with backgrounds other than in law. Or they would insist that half of all MPs were professing Christians. Or they would insist on pre-selecting candidates who were actually conservatives, regardless of gender, instead of people who were a pale shade of green. A report released the other week by Liberal think tank the Menzies Research Centre warned that the Liberal Party was taking only, quote, incremental steps, end quote, towards gender balance. Now, currently, 25% of Liberal MPs across Australia are women. This is well short of the 50% mark the party was hoping to achieve by 2025. By contrast, 46% of Labor MPs are women. And how's that working out for them? The ALP lost the last federal election and received around 300,000 fewer votes from women than did the Liberal Party. No wonder the MRC report says a significant number of Liberals deny that gender imbalance matters. But like I said, it's now an article of faith that anything less than equal numbers of men and women is evidence of a problem. Isn't it funny they don't think that about parenting? But anyway, 
So the MRC report insisted that, and I quote, the first step in addressing the representation of women in the Liberal Party is to acknowledge that the party does in fact have a problem, end quote. In other words, if you think that gender imbalance is not a problem, you are the problem. So by that means, all discussion is shut down. The report rejected the idea of quotas as used by the Labor Party, but demanded targeted intervention, which is a fancy way of saying quotas without using the word. Each Liberal Party division, it said, should set targets for female representation that were measured and reported every year. So the Liberals may not be using quotas, but their fixation on social engineering shows they are taking Australia down the same woke cul-de-sac as Labor, only more slowly. The Liberals will betray their conservative base who believe in meritocracy, and they'll disappoint progressives for not doing woke as well or as quickly as the ALP and Greens. Whatever diversity candidates they do get into Parliament will bring with them their baggage of imagined grievance, which they'll then project onto the party and onto society at large. I'm telling you, nothing good can ever come from prioritising the right genitalia over the right resume and policies. Hi, this is Dave Pello, and tonight on Pello Talk Live, I'll be exploring the important public issue of transgender inclusion with my expert panel, including three targets of the LGBTIQAX plus anti-discrimination industry lawfare. Tasmanian Liberal Senator Claire Chandler, former ACL Managing Director Lyle Shelton, and former Australian Army Major Bernie Gaynor. How do we balance compassion for fellow humans made in God's image with a commitment to uncompromised truth in politics and media? Find out tonight on the Good Source website, YouTube and Facebook channels at 8pm Sydney, Melbourne and Hobart, 7pm Brisbane and 5pm in Western Australia. Hey, thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to go on to the goodsource.news website, goodsource, that's good and source spelt S-A-U-C-E, goodsource.news. Go onto the website there, check out all the other shows. There's great articles. Uh, You'll really enjoy a different perspective of the news without the left-wing woke bias. So check it out and I'll look forward to uh, your company next week for the James McPherson Show. The James McPherson Show is a production of The Good Source, written and presented by James McPherson. To watch, listen to, or read more media without the SJW narratives or PC fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show.